Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and much more Live on Sky Sports Now then you're welcome along Joe Malloy with you here on the Football Show this evening We are going to talk some Saipan this evening I'm afraid to say I'm sure you've had your fill And yet there's always room for more Seems to be the case in many instances So we are 20 years ago this week Where it had all kicked off Today is the 25th of May 2022 and so it was around the 25th into the 26th where there was a sense, well, Roy Keane's now back in Manchester. Surely we're going to hear from him. And then on the 27th of May, uh, the word came through that Roy Keane was going to be on RTE News, a news special in a sense, that evening and that Tommy Gorman would be the man to interview him. So Tommy's going to join us in just a moment. But just uh, to re- refresh the memory, I suppose, in some ways, uh, here's Brian Dobson. This is the sense of gravity that this whole story was being treated with. So RT News, Brian Dobson, the full treatment and frankly, I suspect the entire country watching. So here's the intro to the Roy Keane, Tommy Gorman interview. It's now almost a week since those first reports began to emerge from the Ireland World Cup training camp in Saipan. Captain Roy Keane, perhaps the world's greatest midfield player, certainly the player most responsible for Ireland's qualification for the World Cup finals, was threatening to abandon the side at the very moment he was needed most. Angry over what he regarded as poor preparation by the Ireland management, Keane was nevertheless persuaded to come back on board. But he publicised his frustration in a series of media interviews. Manager Mick McCarthy summoned his rebellious captain to a squad meeting. Harsh words were exchanged. McCarthy, believing his authority as manager was being undermined, decided to send Keane home. This evening, in his first major television interview since his dismissal, Roy Keane speaks about the events which led to his departure from Ireland's World Cup squad, how the controversy has affected him and whether there's any possibility of him playing for Ireland in Japan. He spoke this afternoon... To Tommy Gorman. Tommy Gorman, hello. How are you doing, Joe? Nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Been a huge admirer from afar for many years, so it's great to talk to you. Uh, where did you watch this, by the way? Where were you when Brian Dobson was, uh, frankly, giving an interview that, you know, you, the, governments have fallen with less gravity on a news introduction? Where were you watching? I wasn't watching. I was making sure that a tape continued to roll. It was going out live, Joe. Um, we had uh, interviewed Roy uh, earlier in the evening. Uh, we didn't cut any of the material, but we tidied it up. We had two camera shootings, so we were dropping in some cutaways. Uh, and uh, then we had to get from the hotel to, uh, we went to edit first, and then we went to a feed point. So it really was as live as live could be. So until the interview finished, we were still anxiously uh, hoping that the uh, the tape feed wouldn't break down because if it did there was no backup plan ed mulhall was the head of news in rte at the time a uh, big manchester united supporter big sports supporter encyclopedic knowledge of sport uh, and he was on the bridge uh, in donnybrook just making sure everything went out so we didn't have time to, to watch it anywhere and i suppose in those days, um, there was no way you could pick up, say, a live RTE feed in Manchester. 
So it was, we, could have, we might as well have been in Saipan. There was no way we could actually see the output. Uh, bar, say, the situation we were in where we, where we were feeding it live. We'll jump around a bit here, Tommy. When you eventually did see the interview and did watch it back, what struck you about it in comparison to what it felt like when you were doing it? Um, I was really fed up uh, in the immediate aftermath of the interview uh, and in the times afterwards. Uh, and not as fed up now because you sort of get on with life and you understand that's how tragedy happens sometimes. But uh, I was fed up that uh, that the opportunity wasn't taken by all the different parties, uh, Roy Keane included, for them all to calm down. And uh, now the fact that he had come back from the other side of the Atlantic, the fact that Mick McCarthy and the FAI were over there, that the clock was ticking, you know, that the players had a certain mindset, Keane was gone. It was probably uh, really a 1% or 10% chance anyway, where the kind of odds you were talking about of them all saying, Jesus, this is a dreadful mistake and we should be doing better here and we should be all a bit more grown up. There was very little chance of them um, going back across uh, to the far side of the world and being welcomed with open arms or that there being a truce of sorts. But my um, my feelings uh, afterwards um, were just what a, a mess it was and what a wasted opportunity it was. And of course, we know what happened in the World Cup. It was our first tournament since, what, 1994. Uh, and we know uh, we went out in strange circumstances People weren't sure how many were on the field at one stage. We went out on penalties. And um, I think you could gather from Keane in the interview that he knew this was probably his last chance uh, to say, go further in the tournament, that he was running out of time. And I know from some of the things he said, like he was looking at some of the younger players. I remember him talking about Damien Duff being part of the new breed. And he could see that there was some potential there and, I suppose, like everybody else, he knew hmm. that um, in the aftermath, everybody knew that there was a chance missed. Tommy, how is it that you were sent over to Manchester when Keane was walking the dog? And then how is it that the interview came about? Um, I had done a lot of sports work when um, I was in Brussels. Uh, always had an interest in sport. Um, I covered, you know, different events while I was based in Brussels, including, say, a lot of the Manchester United stuff, uh, Champions League stuff, um, got to meet and got to know Alex Ferguson. Uh, one of the big reasons that there was an Irish interest in Manchester United at the time was we had the two Irish players. We had Dennis Irwin and, and Roy Keane, and United were flying at the time. So I had that experience, um, um, and people say, and Donnybrook knew that I was interested in sport. So I had returned to Belfast, Joe, and I was based there, and um, at the time of the bust up in Saipan, um, I had no involvement with sport on the island of Ireland. But Brian O'Connell, who was RTE's London correspondent, he was off at the time. Hmm. And this was going to be, you know, get to the spot and see what see what can be done. Uh, Tony O'Donoghue and say the heavyweights from our sports department, they were already away at the World Cup. So because I was near an airport, also because I had crewing, I had a great cameraman called Conor O'Brien who was used to, you know, moving as soon as something happened. So we had good editing facilities and we had a reputation for being fast around the courts. So for that reason, Ed Mulhall rang me and he said, look, 
don't know what will come out of this. Uh, Keane is coming back. There's been the big row in Saipan that everyone is talking about. Mm. And can you go over? And it wasn't to get an interview uh, at that stage, Joe. It was to go over and see what, what happens because, yeah. you know, the sequence of events only began to unfold once once he got back, say, into the UK. Then it became known that he was um, going to be doing an interview um, with the Mail on Sunday. And that's when I had my first contact with Michael Kennedy, who was Roy Keane's agent at the time. He had Irish roots and I got on well with him. And he was a pragmatic kind of a person. And it was a pretty simple argument to make or an obvious one to make. That, look, if the captain of Ireland is, you know, falling out with the, the team, and if he's giving an interview to uh, an English Sunday newspaper, it's not going to look the best. And surely you'd like to put your, or he'd like to put uh, his views uh, and his case to the Irish public. Mm. Uh, because Keane is quite patriotic. He's quite attached to his country, always has been. Yeah. Uh, so the great thing I had going for me, it wasn't that I was a genius or that I had a great reputation. What I had going for me, Joe, was I had the brand. I had the access to the airwaves mm. and I had the logic of the argument. Um, Eamon Dunphy says, and uh, I'd say it's true, uh, that... Uh, he was friendly with Roy Keane in those days. I think he had he was working on his uh, his biography with him, and uh, he says that um, Roy Keane asked him, "What about this fellow Gorman?" And he said, uh, uh, "You'll get a fair shake there. He'll be okay." Uh, and um, that's how it came about. How much notice did you have? And was it at a hotel? Um, well, what happened was, you, you know yourself in journalism, the first thing you got to do is you got to get to the place where the story is breaking. So we just took a flight from uh, Belfast to Manchester, hired a car. And then, you know, you have to mark the turf, or there's another phrase you could use, but let's just say mark the turf <laughs> just to show that we were there, fly the flag. Yeah. So we did a quick story when we went on the Friday because we weren't sure when was Keane returning. Then the word came through he was coming in. I think he came into London. And then course we had found out where his house was he had that wall house out in Hale mm. pretty posh district heard Michael Richards talking about going for a an Italian meal in Hale after uh, the um, Eddie had celebrations the other day um, well we were outside the house in Hale that was on the Saturday then Keane came back and interestingly a lot of there were a lot of crews there um, remember this girl I think the girl was from Sky who was asking about what's the dog's name Roy um, and uh when he came, he arrived in, in this vehicle. I think he was in the back. Then it was it was explosive, just visually so strong when he came out in that defiant stance with Triggs and he went off, walked down the road and he went into woodlands. And of course, we followed after that. And then he came back. Then the word got out among most of the people there. That, Look, there's some deal done with the mail on Sunday. He's not going to be saying anything. And they all disappeared. So... We had the place pretty much to ourselves from then on. Then it was a case of, of working the phones with Michael Kennedy. And um, one of the amazing things about him, uh, he, um, I didn't have a mobile for him. And um, I rang the office number uh, on the Saturday. Mm. And he was in the office. Mm. That's the kind of person he was. Mm. Like I'd say he probably had the phone switched through to the house uh, at night. Um, he was that kind of man. He was very, very dedicated. Mm. Really got to like him in the following years. Uh, and then the conversation with him started. And then there was a chance. And then we were pushing and pushing. 
And I think it was probably on the Monday morning that it was confirmed. Uh, and the only sort of uh, guarantee we gave was that, you know, it wouldn't be edited. Um, that um, there, were no, there was no sort of agreement about what kind of questions, no, no deals on no-go areas. Like it was really, it was an open book in that yeah. regard. And then it was a question of getting the logistics together. I had Conor O'Brien, the cameraman with me, and we went and we hired a, a second freelance guy just to, to dress up the shot a bit so mm. he could have two cameras shoot. Mm. And then it was a question of the venue. We hired a room in, in a local hotel and then it was game on. We didn't really have an awful lot of time to think about it. Okay. Did a few colour packages, I think, on the Sunday for the Sunday Bulletin. Uh, we had Keane at a big roadshow a couple of years ago at the Borgosh Energy Theatre and it's probably remembered because so, he was quite explosive on stage. But I have to say, uh, pre-show and then even briefly as he was heading off uh, post-show, he was incredibly personable. He really was. A, a, a charming to all around him. Did you talk to him much in advance or was it pretty quickly down to business? Um, I was so relieved uh, to see him arrive at the hotel because you can imagine um, you were expecting him to come, but there was no guarantee that he'd show up. Um, so when he arrived, I was, you know, delighted. So I noticed when he came into the hotel, he was very respectful to the staff who were there. Um, and we had hired a room. We asked for a room. So we got, I think it was a ballroom or a function room where maybe you'd have weddings and conferences and whatever. So we had a section of that. And um, Connor's a wonderful cameraman. Like he dressed the shot beautifully, you know, the lighting and it was gorgeous. And like King was coming through the screen. He's very, very visual, mm. very, very handsome. Uh, he's great presence. Um, and um, the uh, chit chat I had with him beforehand was um, I was telling him how um, when we were waiting for him to uh, to come on, on the Saturday, uh, we were noticing that you couldn't see that much of the house because there were gates, but we could see the, the top windows and some of his kids were at the top windows, you know, with the curtains sort of opening the curtains. Mm. So I said, the kids were obviously looking forward to you coming home. And I, I found it a really disarmingly nice side of King where, you know, he, he wouldn't say, oh, of course, they would be looking forward to their father coming home. He said, you know, sort of kind of dismissive of himself and the love they'd have for him. He said, oh, yeah, expecting the presence. <laughs> um, and um, that was one of the reasons why uh, when I was working through the interview uh that was one that mentioned one of the reasons why i mentioned mm. kids and children because you could see the the various uh, the obvious love that he had for, for for his kids another thing we picked up when we were hanging around uh hail over that weekend we went into a a few shops and you know went into the news agent shop and it was one of these shops that probably is open 16, 18 hours a day, a man working really hard there. And he said to him that Roy Keane was always respectful to him when he came in for his papers. Uh, and we were in this fancy sort of, I think it was an antique shop as well as a coffee shop. And the woman there said, oh, he comes in with his father sometimes when his father is over from Ireland. Um, and um, he's always very respectful towards his father as well. So, you know, you got at ground level, you, 
you got say those little anecdotes that painted the other side of Keane. Like I had, I had seen him in some of the some of the big football matches. I was in um, the Stadio dell'Alpi the night uh, that you know he tore Turin apart, uh, pulled United up by the bootstrap, scored one of the goals, picked up the yellow card. Um, and as a result, knew that he was out of the Champions League final, but put his team there because mm. through his performance. I was also, um, quite tellingly, I, I covered the first um, Irish, uh, Ireland versus the Netherlands game. Uh, that was in, I think, maybe October or November of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the match where they went two up. Um unbelievable start and then the Dutch pulled them back to two all and um, I remember Keane coming off after that match and you could see he was fuming Mm. and that was the Ferguson influence on him like I saw close up at said those United campaigns where they almost made Champions League finals and they were progressing and progressing I saw them in places I was down in Dortmund when they played I saw them in Porto and like the insistence on ex- excellence that they had. And you could even see, we'd go to the training sessions. And I remember when Steve McLaren was brought into United and the way they changed some of the approach approaches to say the sessions they were doing and how de- how more detailed it was getting. And you could see they were building and building and building. And Keane was uh, very, very obviously in that setting. He was, he was the fighting dog. He was the... He was the gladiator that Ferguson knew when they heat a battle, this guy will flare around him and he'll kill all around him and he'll get you the result. Mm. So I knew that he had um, that very, uh, very decisive side to him. Uh, and I saw I saw with my own eyes in, in uh, Amsterdam that time uh, that Keane was rightly pissed off that they hadn't, you know, when they had the Dutch by the throat that night, that they hadn't stuck the knife into them and killed them off, and that they hadn't taken the three points rather than rather than a draw. You've interviewed uh, some heavy hitters. As you're about to start, as you're in the room, are you nervous? Um, well, you're very, very conscious um, that there's, you're about to do something um, significant, uh, and you don't want to screw up, you don't want to come across like an idiot and you don't want to not ask the obvious. Um, and you're, you're keen, you're, you're, you're wanting to try and, and do something productive. Like when somebody is having the trust with you or circumstances, have them in the situation where they're sitting opposite you. Like it's, it's a great honor and it's a great responsibility. Mm. And it's also, it's a, it's a great challenge, but with him, um, I really wanted to talk to him uh, and for lots of reasons. I was at the stage of my life where I wanted to see the issue that an awful lot of people in Ireland were interested in was whether there was any chance of this fellow going back. Um, I just I didn't see any point in interviewing him just to see how angry he was or to get him to say stuff you know, that would be incendiary and, you know, uh, that would wind things up even further or keep the door completely shut. Like, um, well, I, do you know, Tommy, because I have a bunch of clips here and people are texting in as well and they have a few questions as well. So 
Uh, for, oh, in, yeah. for, for instance, here's one clip where your approach in that respect is very obvious. And you're, you're, you're talking in this uh, clip, Make it's the third one we picked out about, um, or actually we'll go with language first of all. So yeah, so this is uh, initially the, the, the first chunk of the interview to uh, briefly remind people is Keane uh, talking about his various grievances. And I have to say on, on watching them again, his grievances are absolutely valid. You know, when he lays them all out, it was such a farce. Uh, that goes without saying. And then you move into... Uh, the meeting after the Irish Times interview. And so uh, this is where you pick him up, I suppose, on his language. Just have a listen. Roy, do you, do you accept that the language used wasn't very nice? I know Alex Ferguson has used expletives in his time. I know Mick McCarthy has done it as well. But do you accept that it's not the kind of language one expects from a leader of men? Leader Especially of men. when it gets out. Well, this was, well, again, this was a private meeting. This was a private team meeting. But even if it wasn't... I didn't call a press, opera, uh, press uh, conference 15 minutes after the meeting. I didn't. I didn't go and say what apparently people were saying. But how about the actual language itself? Do you accept that it wasn't, it wasn't very complimentary to McCarthy and that he was justified in feeling hurt by it? Justified in questioning my loyalty to my country. Asking the lads in front of me, saying the Iran match, I faked an injury when he spoke to my manager in front of me. He knew I wasn't right. And then just a, a moment or two later, we come back to language. Have a listen. So obviously there's going to be language. I wasn't going to sit there and say, excuse me, Mick, I think you're a little bit out of order. I, of course you're going to use language. And I said things to Mick. And I, I'm 100% behind what I said. Mick, Are I you this, sorry for the way you said it? Um, and it's not a sign of weakness if you say you're sorry. I, I agree with you. But no. As I said, over the last few days, usually, no matter what you might do in life, you make decisions, whether it be moving house, moving jobs, getting your hair cut, buying a pair of shoes, and you might have some doubts, did I do the right thing? But the last few days, I don't feel, there's not one doubt in my mind where I stand, not one doubt. And uh, that's good enough for me. So you can, you can hear you like doing everything in your power to suggest it's not a sign of weakness. Is there anything that you'll concede here? And he's like, I agree with you, but no. And you can, the whole country went, ah, it's like a, like a shot going just past the post. I have a few other clips later on I'll play you where something similar happens. But it is clear your approach was not to get in there and kick a hornet's nest. You, I mean, you felt like a peace broker as much as an interviewer across the half hour that I watched. Well, I really felt that he, he was entitled to be understood. Uh, and like what comes out for me listening to that clip there was how personally insulted and hurt he was, the idea that he faked injury. And like everyone knows that, you know, Keane had bad injury uh, and was running out of time in his career. Uh, and his body, after the serious injury that he had, the body will never be as good as it was uh, before the damage was done. Uh, so I think you get a sense of that from him there. I think there's, there's a later um, a time in the interview where I was just really too loose with my own language uh, and where he absolutely hammered me for it, you know, where I was suggesting, you know, that maybe he had done wrong or that he should apologize. And he just went off his head. And I just said to myself, look, there's no point in going here. Let's let's just back out of there and see where, where else we can go. And see, because... For me, the fact that he wanted to put his case to the Irish people 
showed that there was still unfinished business with him. And like, you were always conscious of the fact of where Keane came from, that he had to fight for everything he got, that he always saw himself as an outsider. Mm. Yeah, and that, say, even on the football field, like, he had to be absolutely better than most of them. That's why he was the captain of the Irish team. Uh, so you were conscious that this was an extremely talented athlete who felt that he was due respect, felt that he wasn't getting the respect, and was never going to say, Jesus, I made an awful mess of that, and please, Mick, can I come back? Yeah. And you were certainly a delicate. So, instance, here's a clip where you're picking up on the point where he's just done the interview in the Irish Times and there's the infamous meeting. And I think it's obvious in your questions, it, even in just some of the pauses here, that you're, you're, you're hoping he might acknowledge in some respect that going public in the Irish Times the way he did uh, was understandably not great from mixed perspectives. So here, here we are. This is the, the infamous meeting. And I went for my meal at half six on the Thursday and I was told there was a meeting at half past seven. And I knew what it was all about. I knew. And, uh, but, but Roy, do you see that from Mick McCarthy's perspective, this was a challenge to him? You were the team captain. He was the manager. Uh, here was this article in the paper. OK, maybe he made a mistake in bringing it yeah, the into the public. The, the article in the paper was fine. If, if anybody reads it, it's fine. You don't think that it might have undermined the morale of the other players, that, you know, you'd no. be critical as a training if preparation. If you read it, it's fine. Anybody who read the piece, it's fine. I questioned the training facilities, which I said to make. And that was about it. It's very clear by the pause that you did read it and you didn't think it was fine, but you were judiciously deciding to what extent you were going to say that. Yeah, like, there was no point in going there. No. Because I think he needed to say that himself. Like the more interesting thing to see was, was there any soft side to him? Mm. That like sometimes if you just, I felt that, look, let him off there. If that's the way he wants to say it, even if he doesn't believe that 100%, well, let him off there and move on to, move on to another subject. Like it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do, to, to sort of get into an argy-bargy with them. Mm. But that was going to serve no purpose as far as I was concerned. Well, you get close enough in the in the closing exchanges, I think. Um, can you hang on two seconds, Tommy, and we'll take a very quick yeah. ad break. OK, yeah, Tommy yeah, Gorman's yeah. going to stay with us. Back in one second with Tommy Gorman. I just think he's full of SH1T at times. It's like, you know, quoting Kipling to players doesn't work. Rudyard Kipling. Probably Mr Kipling would have been better. OTB AM, live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and much more Live on Sky Sports You're very welcome back Joe Malloy here in studio Our football show coverage brought to you by Sky You can watch every UEFA Champions League and Europa League match live on BT Sport this season We are 20 years on from well Saipan and in particular Tommy Gorman chatting to Roy Keane Some text messages in. Great to hear Tommy on the radio. Fantastic. Trusted journalist down the years, says Emer. Phil says, Tommy, a great storyteller. Vividly remember watching the interview with my dad. Not quite great times, but memorable. We spent the night waiting to see if Roy had given enough of an olive branch. We figured he hadn't at the time. And Graeme says, if it came down to it, was Tommy Team Roy or Team Mick? <laughs> um, do I answer that last one? <laughs> Absolutely. If you if you're if you have a strong answer, absolutely. 
I was Team Ireland, um, uh, Team Sensible. Um, yeah. And um, I, I think we all lost when Keane didn't go back. Uh, I think we would have been a much better team with them. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I, I was struck by the second uh, text you read out there about wondering about the olive branch and had enough being done. Uh, personally, I, I think that, that Keane was... There was a side of Keane that wanted to go back. And I know that he he spent um, a fair bit of the night watching, say, the, what was coming. I think Sky had the usual 24-hour news service, so he was monitoring that. It was a different era in terms of communications. You didn't have Twitters and uh, Instagram, and you didn't have that kind of uh, massive um, social media uh, industry in those times. But um, for me, when I heard... Um, John Delaney had actually been on our 6-1 news. Now, remember, this piece went out at 8 o'clock and a young John Delaney was left to man the fort, a young, inexperienced John Delaney, because all his colleagues were on the far side of the world. And um, I think he um, he gave an interview into the 6-1. We had a clip of the stuff on the 6-1, but he gave an interview that from what he heard, Roy hasn't said enough. Now, the one, there's one thing I'm sure of is that John Delaney hadn't heard the whole interview because we were still working on it. And as I told you at the top of the program, we were feeding it live. Mm. So he sort of made the, I don't know whether he was the executioner, but I think he made a bit of a judge and jury um, decision about it. Um, don't think it was deliberate trying to shut the door, but I think that's the impact it had. also think that because of, say, the circumstances in which King, King left and the guys being in boot camp or not, anything but boot camp, but being in camp in Saipan on the other side of the world, um, I think the die might have been cast there as well and that it would have take, taken an abject apology for, from Keane to, to turn things around. Well, I remember... But, oh, in, I was struck, in, uh, if I can make this point, yes. I, was, I watched him on Monday night um, on the pitch uh, after City won yeah. uh, the, the Premiership. And um, I think... He has found his space. I don't think I don't think he'll ever be a good manager. I think he's a stunning pundit. I think he's electric on television. And I noticed how when Guardiola came over after this really big day in his life, when all seemed lost, and then he got it back again. And unusually, he cried. And Guardiola came in and you know gave some comments to the guys who were there, probably part of the contract. I noticed when Guardiola was leaving that he made it his business to go over and had a discussion with Roy Keane off camera. Uh, and that's the respect that somebody like Guardiola has for Keane. Mm. With regard to the olive branch, uh, these two clips are as close as we got. And this is towards the end, two thirds in. And uh, mm. I guess you, you, you decide, you know, he's aired his grievances. You've delicately let him make some points which other people could have had issues with and then I suppose just it, it became apparent how silly and, and needless you thought the whole thing was as did most of us I suppose so here's the uh, I suppose the think of the children section I guess we can uh, we can call it so this is about two thirds of the way in and you're you're this is, the, this is where he starts to crack a touch there's this very soft side to you I saw you the other day when you were being pursued by the photographers and a wee laddie says something to you about Manchester United and you smiled and you turned around to him and you said thanks very much son um, I saw your, your children waiting at the windows when you were coming home they were delighted to see you home well 
what about all the little kids in Ireland who have you as a role model, who love you, who, are, who would love to see you back in the World Cup, and who are absolutely appalled that this row has taken place and don't know what to say? Exactly. Well, I, you know, do you think I've enjoyed the last few days? It's been hard. Of course it has. I'd love to play in the World Cup. I played in 94. It was fantastic. Eight long years ago. And I've done no more, no less than the other lads in the squad to get us back. And uh, I would love to play. Of course I would. But, um, you know, again... And everyone in the country, from the tea shook down, would love to see this resolved. You know, there are 13, 14-year-olds who tell their parents, I don't want to play football anymore, I'm depressed. Well, Kids who wear your, you know, jerseys with your name on it, they're absolutely haunted by what's going on. They don't know what to make of it. Well, that'll pass. People have to get on with their lives, you know. It's a football tournament. My loyalty was questioned. I was called a liar in front of a group of people. And then after that, of course, there was more to it. As I said, I didn't realise it was a press conference. I think within a half an hour, maybe less. And I know the kids in Ireland, and I feel bad for it myself. Of course I do. But I want to go back to Ireland. I've got my family over there. You know? But does it, you know, I have to stand up for what I believe in. I'll live and die by my actions. And I will continue to do so. I tell my kids what's right and what's wrong. But what happened to me was wrong. But you, you're an Irish man and very proud of it. You know the country we live in. We know in the north we're asking people who have been at each other's throats for years and years to make compromises, to say I'm sorry, to put up their hands, to shake hands. And here we have our football team, riven by division, destroyed by division. Is there no way that you, Mick McCarthy, the Irish footballers, can give people an example and show what people in the north and people in the country are trying to do, that you're prepared to do the same? Or is that alien to you guys? No, it's not. As I said, if for one second, if I thought, since I got back home the other day, for one second I thought, maybe, Roy, maybe you were a little bit out of order, or maybe there's a way back, I'd be back on that flight. No doubts in my mind about that. But I went to my room and we had three players in a press conference. Within 20 minutes, a half an hour of it. Send her behind Mick. When they, we'd all spoke about it. People look at them as role models. They're cowards. I know that in football, the guy who pulls out of a tackle or the guy who compromises is seen as weak. That he's not the kind of guy you want in a team. But in life, sometimes it's the guy who compromises, the guy who offers the apology, that he gains strength I from agree that. With you. I agree with you 100%. Life's too short. Life's too short. Would it not be a very but big thing for you if to I do? If I went back, I couldn't give 100% for my country. I couldn't. Oof. I mean, bereft children, the peace process. You tried your best in that one. Yeah, and could you feel him wavering a bit? I listen. Absolutely wavering a bit. The weight of it. I mean, the weight of, that must have been on him. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a very complex guy, but a, he's a smashing guy as well. And every time you think of Keen, you just have to bear in mind that he, he was the absolute best uh, as a footballer. And sometimes there's a price to be paid for that in the kind of um, uh, stretch you have to make to accommodate him. Ferguson, Ferguson knew how to handle him. And I suppose uh, the brutal side of sport, 
when uh, the equation wasn't working for United anymore. Um, Roy Keane knew that his time there was up. Uh, and that's how life goes. That's what Ferguson had to do throughout his career as a manager, to be a successful manager. But Ferguson wanted him to go back. Uh, and Ferguson thought it was a load of nonsense, the whole row that was going on in the Irish camp. I also think, Joe, it would be very, very unfair for me to, to say or to, to leave it open there or hanging there that Mick McCarthy was the villain in the piece. Like Mick McCarthy was, um, he was a wonderful uh, servant Ireland uh, as a player, uh, as a manager. It's very, very good values, um, as honest as they come. Um, and Keane, I just think, was a different class of a footballer and he was probably too hot to handle for making the circumstances. But the biggest weakness in the whole goddamn thing, and it was borne out by subsequent events, the biggest weakness was that the FAI did not have the resources, the personnel, the structures, the ideas, the philosophy to handle, you know, talents like Keane and to be able to accommodate the Keanes as well as the Damien Duffs and the Jason McAteers and the Robbie Keanes and the Packy Bonners and the Shea Givens. Uh, the FAI wasn't at the races. And one of the good things, and I'm a League of Ireland fan, one of the good things now is... I see the FAI and indeed the League of Ireland that they're in a different place. Before you go, I want to ask you, was Keane happy with the interview? But here's the the finale. And so you got to remember, this is 33, 34 minutes of him being mm. militant, militant. Like, mm. ironically, we're doing the 20 year anniversary. At one point you said to him, but Ryan, 10, 15 years, are you not going to regret this? And uh, well, we're at 20 and counting and he still maintains he doesn't. But then just right at the end, right at the end, we, we get this kind of cliffhanger. And this is where you're really kind of pushing him. Come on, this is Thursday, matches on Saturday. So here's the, here's the finale to the interview. Yeah, but you're, you're talking about, about your sense of, of grievance. And sense of grievance? Well, 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 I'm just giving, you feel you're I'm not talking about my to. sense of grievance. I'm giving my side of the story. No, but, right. But you say what was done to you was wrong and you've explained why. But aren't wrongs all relative things? And what about the sense of wrong to those poor people who save their money, who follow Ireland, who love you, who want to teach your kids, yes, you're right, he is a hero, he's a fantastic fella. What about the sense of confusion they feel, that ye guys can't sort this out as adults? Um, you're probably right, you know, as I said, uh, I'm agreeing with you a lot of your points. And I do realise there's, there's kids in Ireland, there's people in Ireland, my family were supposed to travel and it's all got messy, but nobody wanted that, nobody. As you said, maybe there is a way. Maybe there is, but who knows? Who knows? And we'll have to wait and see. You know, the match is Saturday. We're running out of time. Uh, but as I said, my conscience is clear, and that is the most important thing in my life. It really is. But if the other parties in this come to you, the FAI, Mick McCarthy, a proud man, the players, if they come to you and say, for the good of the country, we want to find a solution to this. We'd like it to be playing for Ireland. Are you willing to meet them halfway? I want to play for Ireland. We'll have to see. Possibly, yes. But I, there's nobody wants to play for much as Ireland as me. As I said, I've been involved since I was 15, 14, going for trials up in Dublin. And this is what it's all about, playing in World Cups. So, hopefully, you never know. You just never know. But uh, 
No, we'd say. It's hurting you, this. Oh, of course it's hurting me. Dead right it is. And then suddenly we're back to Brian Dobson. We don't know what the hell to think. Does that mean he's he's, he's coming back? So that, that was the cliffhanger. There's a tweet in from somebody uh, who says a 31 year old man saying I live and die by my actions. And then the person has like hands over head emoji. This is the intensity of of Keane. I, I remember reading Niall Quinn's autobiography. Again, communications being what they were, you know, phones being held up to televisions and, and transcripts. And oh well, there wasn't enough in the transcript. But then people saying to Niall Quinn, well, he looked sorrier than the transcript reads and you know this is the insanity of it all you said you got close to Kennedy I guess um, over the years you may have heard what Keane made of the interview or, or maybe did you have much of a conversation when you said cut that's a wrap did he did he seem that like I'm happy with that that was a fair account did he feel it, it represented him well I think we were all pretty tired after it because it was very intense um, you know um, <laughs> you just the small little group we had in the corner of this big uh, hotel conference room. Um, and uh, there was this sort of silence uh, after it. I said thanks and uh, said we'd be, get on with it and be sending it back. And um, I walked him out, um, Joe, I walked him out to the car. Um, and um, I remember there, there were staff in the hotel and asked him for an autograph and uh, he was perfect gentleman in doing that there was no you know star behavior really mannerly and saw him go off in the hotel and then we came back and we started getting to work on it um and um i know in Keane's case that he was waiting to see what the reaction would be he didn't say that's that now and book is closed um and i'd say Part of him was uh, fed up with this guy who had put him through the ringer that I'd hit him with all these moral questions and mentioned how John O'Mahony got the Donalds to sort of uh, heal their differences and um, Galway had one in all Ireland and look what they're doing up north and look at all the kids back in Ireland who be Jesus are wound up about this and <laughs> putting putting all that on the shoulders. So I'd say uh, to have all that weight put on to him, I'd say... Part of him was a bit fed up with that. With that, but I, I had dealings with him afterwards. Um, he um, came over to Dublin to do a thing for the guide dogs, and I was given that interview uh, with him. It was the first thing he did when he came back, um, and he helped me. Um, he helped me. This is an interesting story. Um, Martin McGuinness one Friday uh, rang me and um, asked. Um, was a young lad from Derry going over to a match on the next day in uh, United were playing against Southampton and could the young lad get to meet Roy Keane? Now that was a big stretch because uh, it was the day after very little time, but the young lad was very sick and uh, I got on to Michael Kennedy and um, the next day match took place. I think United won maybe three, two and Keane came out of the players' lounge with Ruud van Nistelrooy, looked for the young lad, brought the young lad into the players' lounge, spent time with him, and then took off his jersey and presented him with the jersey. Um, and the young lad was very sick. Um, he died not long after that. But um, I took that to be a sign of, uh, of 
the Roy Keane that I'm very sure is there, that soft side of Keane. Um, also thought it was kind of not ironic, but interesting the way that afterwards he and Mick McCarthy were reconciled. Um, he was reconciled with um, Niall Quinn. Don't think he has great relationship still with, with Jason McIntyre, even though McIntyre got really important goals in that campaign. I think he got one in each of the matches against the Dutch, the one in Amsterdam and the one in, got, didn't he get the goal in Dublin? Yeah, both, yeah. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, the most interesting twist of all, he actually came to work for the FAI uh, with Martin O'Neill. So pragmatism kicked in you know, in the end on several fronts. Thank you so much for coming on. We are sadly out of time. I'm sure we could do another half hour if we had to. But Tommy Gorman, a real pleasure. 20 years on, flew by, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Tommy, for coming on. Nice talking to you, John. Keep up the good work. OK, thanks very much. Tommy Gorman with us there, 20 years on from his interview with Roy Keane.